When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. another episode of the good music podcast i'm lucas i'm grant and if you're enjoying your time with us hopefully you are check out all of our episodes leave us a like leave us a rating on whatever platform you're listening to um and definitely go listen to some episodes from some artists you're unfamiliar with you never know what you might like um down in the description there's a link to our patreon page if you're particularly interested in some good music you can get access to episodes early and you can also get access to our exclusive After Hours segment, our bad music podcast, where every week we talk about the worst songs from every artist. And man, if you like their worst songs, you will definitely get sold on the artist. So that is a really great segment. It's a really fun segment every week. Um, I... Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Did you say something? I was just saying I enjoy it. Yo, yeah, no, and I know Ethan enjoyed it. So, you know, all... <laughs> All of those episodes are still up from all the previous weeks. So if you do join our Patreon right now, um, you'll definitely enjoy our previous co-host, Ethan, having some really hot takes in those episodes. Um, and we also have a Facebook and Instagram. So get on the conversation there. Um, suggest some artists that you want us to talk about, and we might just get around to them. Um, there's a lot of artists to do, so hearing what you guys want to do will definitely direct what we're going to do in the future, and we really want to you know, serve you guys, you guys, the listeners. And of course, thank you for listening in. If that's all you're doing, we really appreciate and really enjoy having you here on this journey towards, you know, finding good music. And on that journey, we of course have a spinoff series, our history of music series. And yes. we just finished the Baroque era. So if you're not caught up with that mini series, we have that at the end of every month, the last week. And we just finished our Baroque series, which was a monster yeah, uh, we... four episodes or something. No, I'm pretty sure may, maybe four, which means four months, really. Yeah, really. Yeah, because we did we did um we did opera, uh Lorfeo with Monteverde. We did uh Handel's Messiah for Oratorio, we did uh Concertos, and then we did one just all about Bach. Yeah, so that was we stayed there for quite a while, but it's finally time to move to our next era, which is um, not to throw a pun in already, but a, a classic era of music. <laughs> yes, we're finally into the classical period. Oh, boy. So let's. So what is the uh, defining, I guess, musically and historically? What's the what's the barrier between the two? So um, 
it, we we know that it starts in 1750 um, because the death of Bach um, is the is the signal point that the era has changed. But it is not one of those things to where like all of a sudden everything suddenly changed. Mm-hmm. You still have a lot of things that are baroque in the couple of years, I would say probably like the decade or so after 1750. And there's some things in the 1730s and 1740s that are the, the beginnings of the classical period. So, um, and what, and like we talked about in our Bach episode, Bach was not a particularly beloved and accomplished, um, composer during his lifetime. So this is not a, a marker that would have been made at the time. This is something that like in the late 1800s as kind of the timeline of music has been compiled that historians have pointed to that after his work has been solidified as truly significant and representative. So don't, I wouldn't expect to view it as once 1750 happens, that's like all of a sudden everything just shifts. But I would say at that point, that's when everything tips in favor of the classical style because you don't really like how we have in today's music where you can have things that are intentionally retro. Mm -hmm. Like you're just like, Oh man, that's got a lot of eighties influence. So that's got a lot of seventies and like people didn't do that back then. It was kind of a constant moving forward. And to a certain extent, Bach would use that, but he never meant it as a, I'm going to throw in something retro. It was more of just like, I just want to do something that contains this style. Mm-hmm. But you you had this sense of we're constantly moving forward. And once a style takes form, it pretty much is just like, you're going to get that style in particular. It's once the classical period begins, there's no one making Baroque flavored music really anymore. And so the more popular it gets, the less Baroque things start to sound. So um, just a a refresher of the Baroque period. um, It is very, um, it's defined by a mathematical precise approach to Um, music composition the three major periods of western music which would be baroque classical and romantic i've i didn't hear anyone explain this to me but the more i've looked at it the more i feel like that this makes sense to me the baroque's main contribution to music is the establishment of the structure of music i mean we really saw that in our bach episode about how how the form of music is really the most sacred thing. You, yeah. you had all of these, these forms, these, you know, your sonata form, your rondo form, your minuet form is like, they had very tight rules and Bach was someone that obeyed them very strictly. Mm-hmm. The classical period is the, the real um, development and actualization of melody. To where it's okay to start bending the rules of the form if it benefits the music. Ah. There's there's still not a lot of rule breaking, but the most it's more important to serve the melody than it is to serve the structure. 
And Sounds really, kind you of can... like that uh, that like eighties post Prague, where it's still very very poppy. But yeah, it's, it's there's a little bit more underlying, I guess, nuances. Yeah, because obviously you you could you could even say in some instances the the playing is getting more virtuosic in the classical mm-hmm. period, mm. but it's not in the more show-offy way that it is in the baroque period okay it's incredibly intentional and it's always serving it's it's really the dawn of the hook Mm -hmm. like to have simple melodic ideas that stay with you past when you've heard it instead of it just creating an overall experience Mm -hmm. like bach is a genius composer but he's someone that not necessarily you come away humming his pieces. They don't get stuck in your head as much. They're they're incredible in the moment as you're experiencing them, but you don't you don't find yourself humming them throughout the rest of your day. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing on him. It's just that's just not the kind of music he played. Mm-hmm. Kind of like kind of like Opeth. You don't find yourself as much like humming an Opeth song. You're more likely to hum a uh, a Van Halen song, or mm-hmm. you know something something more accessible. Right. You're gonna you're gonna hum a BG song before you hum an Opeth song. <laughs> yeah. We'll put and, it that way. And I mean, I noticed a lot of I guess rhythmic motifs. Like it wouldn't necessarily be the same melody. They'd kind of shift it up and down the scale in a lot of these yes. songs. The composers would. And uh-huh. but it would keep that same, you know, rhythm, kind of like how we talked yeah. in uh, the Beethoven episode with the um, Fifth Symphony, where mm-hmm. it was those four notes and the whole song would follow that. There's some of these songs that, you know, would do that with three or like a particular, um, you know, rhythm. Uh, we have a Mozart song in here that does that. So, yeah, it's, so- it's no spoiler. We have a Mozart song. This is a classical <laughs> of course we were going to um theme and variation is one of the most important things in classical music it's something like you had themes in baroque music but they weren't ever expounded on rather you had mm-hmm. multiple themes that fit together but you wouldn't take one theme and then transform it continuously as you move through the piece like whenever you had have themes return in Baroque music, they would usually come back exactly the same way they were played earlier. Or so the- classical almost feels more free form in that way? It's n- not, I wouldn't say free form. Once we get to the romantic period, that would be a more apt description. Rather okay. think of it as it's, it's a story. Okay. It's, it's, it's very much working towards a specific goal. There's an end game in mind, and the brilliant classical composers are the ones that knew how to take this starting idea and transform it in in exciting yet um, predictable ways. Predictable? Not well, maybe predictable, but to where it doesn't, it's not out of left field. It's natural, natural ways. That's probably the better way to explain. Yeah. Okay. It's you're there's no hard left turns except for i would say probably one of them and that's because it comes at the very end of the classical period right i mean i would i would say that the baroque that we listened to 
stayed away from anything that could even be um, perceived as a out of left field, you know, yes. kind of movement. And I would say still in the classical period, you don't have a lot of experimentation. Mm-hmm. Like you look at someone like Mozart, he is considered one of the greatest musical minds of all time. But the reason that he was so brilliant was not because he was doing things that no one had done before. He was brilliant because he did what everyone else was doing, but he did it at such a high level that it was blowing people's minds. He came up with the best melodies. Yes. I I would say that he might be the great master of melody. Ooh. The only other person I think in music history that could go toe to toe with Mo- Mozart would be Paul McCartney. <laughs> I mean, as wow. far as as far as the sheer number of memorable hooks that not just are brilliant in their own way, but are also like easily accepted, right? Um, where like I would more compare someone like Beethoven to John Lennon who was much more of an experimental songwriter. The thing about that made Beethoven so different, yet so equally as brilliant as Mozart, was that he was constantly trying to figure out something that had never been done before. He was a visionary revolutionary, mm-hmm. where Mozart was, was consistently, in many ways like Bach, where we talked about how Bach wasn't necessarily reinventing the wheel he was just making the best wheel that you've ever seen yeah good point and i would say that mozart fits in that same way he was his music you don't hear it and go wow that's really wild and revolutionary it's just holy crap this is just this is one of the most well-written things i've ever heard so I mean, this might be too much of a spoiler, but at this point, were there composers that were trying to be experimental and they were just not getting funding? Or was that just an unheard of idea? No, it was still because at this, it's not until we get to the romantic period, and this is kind of going to be my the third phase of musical development, is the romantic period, the, the main shift is from... Uh, writing songs for the masses to writing songs for yourself. Ah. In- instead of music being a a vehicle to win over people, it be- in the Romantic period, it switched to a vehicle for self-expression. Music as self-expression didn't really exist until Beethoven. He was the he was the first one to really say like I'm going to write this music the way I want it to be. If you like it, great. If not. I don't need you. I don't care. So it wasn't really even like a passing thought to write a self-reflective song. I mean, yes, to a certain degree, but they'll never choose self-expression over audience uh, acceptance. Okay. If if self-expression gets in the way with a large populace, enjoying it and understanding it then they're not going to do it in the classical period so there's there's there was still and i would say that the classical period really is the culmination of that idea so was was there social pressure to do that like they still had uh yes because 
at one of the biggest changes about the classical period is the fact that now it's not just the um the high ranking class of civilization getting to hear all this music this is now the era of the big concert halls that pretty much unless you're poor and are destitute you're going to get to go hear a lot of this music oh nice and so this is this is this is the pop music of the uh of the olden age when we when we think of like um like the if we combine the baroque classical and romantic period together as kind of like old music the classical period is the most intentionally accessible phase of music while at the same time still being incredibly fruitful for those that have a deeper musical mind. Mm. This is not dumbed down music. This is not music that has no depth to it. And that's what's really smart about classical music is that it's simultaneously challenging for the people that know music, but also simple enough to where a person that has no musical training or experience listened to and goes, wow, I really like that. So the was the filling of the concert halls how they got paid? Was that why that was such a big deal? Yes, because now this is this is now another thing that the classical period introduces is the is the international acclaimed composer. Where mm-hmm before you had the one or two that would maybe be recognized outside of their home country. But now in the classical period, you could be known in all of Europe as someone that is a world-class composer. That's what, that's what Mozart was. Everyone in Europe knew who Mozart was and recognized him as the best of his time. So was he the first? No, he wasn't. Oh, and who would have that been? That would have been. Well, are you talking about who's the first ever like who classical who's composer? The first big uh, international. Who's the first? All of Europe knows this guy. I would say probably Johann Stamitz, who's going to be the first composer that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. He. It's strange is, we don't know who he is today. Yeah, but at the time, his Mannheim Orchestra and Symphony was the um was the talk of the town and helped Mannheim in the early I was saying like the first half of the mm-hmm. classical period helped it be the hub for everything that was going on. And I guess we can go ahead and talk about the 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 specific thing that we're going to talk about in this episode which is the symphony. Because the oh, symphony Yeah, we I mean it was we did need to talk about all this about the classical period. There's a couple other things I want to touch about before we get really deep into symphonies. But um, he really helped bring that particular um, type of music into popularity, as well as he was the one that really developed the orchestra into what we view it as today. Okay. And the Mannheim Orchestra was kind of considered the first true great orchestra. Because they – was it great because it combined all the instruments or great because 
great musicians. Both. So uh, obviously in the they made sure that they had stellar players, but stellar players were not as easy to find. And you it was it was very difficult to create a large orchestra unless you were in one of the hub areas. Right. Um the orchestra really, in a sense, we talk we talked about in the Baroque period things being orchestral, but the orchestra didn't really exist until the birth of the classical period. Because and this was something I actually learned while doing the classical period. So if I'm retconning myself a little bit, I apologize. A little disclaimer, I do not at all claim to be a a master of music history. I am I am learning immensely for these episodes i'm sure that if i ever i were to come back to this i would be a lot wiser to, throughout my entire life continue to go through the music history timeline going to the beginning and and working my way through because i know i'll learn new things every time so if i ever say anything that's incorrect i apologize but i i am doing my my fair share of homework so feel like I 90% of the time know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, um, oh, what was I talking about? That's a great question. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. So the orchestra. So thing, the, things were orchestral. But the thing that makes an orchestra an orchestra is that you have to have multiple um of the same instrument playing the same thing together. The thing that I actually found very interesting, and I and I heard someone describe this going back to the open where you have that big orchestral moment. If you if you can kind of in your brain remember back to what that sounded like. Right. I heard it pointed out that you don't hear the entire orchestra playing together. You hear the brass in the first and the third part, but then the middle is played by all the woodwinds. But they don't play together. And that was... In Baroque music, was that you would have the size of a small to medium orchestra, but it was rare when they all played at the same time. Instead, you would have different sections playing different parts depending on what kind of tone color the composer wanted for that particular section oh and now we're using all the colors at once kind of thing yes obviously you'll Ooh. still have moments where we're going to have the brass really dominating here or the strings really are going to just play by themselves here but in the classical form and in the symphony in particular this is the first time that a large orchestra is coming together and everybody is playing most of the time. So really the, the orchestra is, in the way that we look at it and know it now is truly born classical period. That so that's a big deal. <laughs> yes. The other, the other things to note about the classical period before we get into symphonies is um, as far as just historically, this is a time of a lot of European change and unrest. Mm -hmm. Think of the classical period 
as going on at the same time as the American Revolution. So oh. at the same at the same time that America was born was when Mozart was at the peak of his powers. Okay. And then of course you, I guess you have the French Revolution. Yeah, French Revolution. That that had a much more immediate impact. It was also the time of Napoleon and uh, just a lot of civil unrest throughout Europe. The Baroque oh period was a more peaceful time. The classical period was a much more revolution time. It's also the time of the Enlightenment. The um, the idea that man can learn everything he needs to know through his natural lens, and it doesn't have to be spiritually guided. That that almost sounds to me like it's sowing the seeds for the next musical movement. Well, yeah, every it always does. We you you even all the way back to the Renaissance, we've had this step towards moving away from a religion-based society and more towards a secular society. Well, I mean, e even so, like you have a lot of civil unrest and a lot of wars, and you know, questioning reality and and things, right? Mm -hmm. And yet we have very structured music. Maybe maybe that's intentional because then music is the structured thing. It's a, it's an escape for structure. It was like an escape. Yeah. I'm not a sociologist. Think, well, I mean, you can you can see a parallel between that and all the music and entertainment that came out during the 30s and 40s with the Great Depression and World War II. You didn't see a lot of stuff that like was like about the suffering of people. It was all, you know, it's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and the Wizard of Oz and all these fantastical things that you can kind of escape from. True. Wow. Yeah, like how Monopoly was the most popular game during the Depression. <laughs> yeah. That's that's a good that's a good point. It's a good little point there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so maybe it does make perfect sense. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the symphony. Because this is the we're we're entering into the classical period, but the symphony felt like the best place to start. Okay. I would say that the symphony is probably the most iconic and popular form of instrumental music ever. Don't say it's, it's the most what? misunderstood. Yes, because oh. in the same way that the term classical is misunderstood. Okay. Where right. both classical and symphony are both used as kind of umbrella terms. People mm -hmm. tend to say classical in referring to anything that is orchestral or even just anything of that time period. Mm -hmm. And when I say of that time period, I mean like a good 400 year period. <laughs> like yeah. there's a lot of people that would call stuff that from the late Renaissance as classical music. And so, and that can lead up all the way into the early 1900s. We won't hold it against them. Just, you know, send, I mean, send it's them over here to the podcast and we'll, we'll yeah. Classical is a very specific frame of time, 1750 to about 1820. Oh, that's wow. that's your that's your time frame, our shortest time frame so far. Right. 
we don't even have a hundred years in the classical period. And this is another thing that, you know, we find as we move forward is that we had, you know, we had the, the medieval period that lasted a thousand years, a thousand years of snail pace, musical development. Right. Then you have the Renaissance that lasts like, you know, 200 years from like 1420 to 1600. Right. Then you have the Baroque period that lasts from 1600 to 1750. That's 150 years. Mm -hmm. Then you have the classical period that's from 1750 to 1820. And that's only 70 years. Only 70 years. Theoretically, someone someone's lifetime could span three different musical eras at this point historically they would know it because those are things that we have you know after the fact yes and they're and they're and they're very gradual again there's there's not where it's like someone releases a composition and all of a sudden everything has changed not not a nirvana type uh thing going on here no Although I would say if there was one moment throughout this time period that where it would happen, it would probably be the release of Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 5. That was a pretty, like, where did this come from? And then now all of a sudden it's kind of like everything is steering in a new direction. Mm. So, but, but that's neither here nor there. Um So the classical period is a specific thing. The symphony is a specific thing. A lot of people tend to use the word symphony to refer to any instrumental orchestral work. And that is, that is also not true. Um, It is definitely the symphony is the biggest and grandest of all of the instrumental orchestral pieces. Um, I feel like a lot of times people will use it correctly because they're going to think of you know the large you know 50 to 70 piece uh ensemble playing these big bombastic uh songs and that's what people are usually going to think of and that's what a symphony usually entails symphonies are not meant for small groups you have to have a very um, beefy orchestra in order for something to be classified as a symphony. So the word symphony means in unity, in concert, for things to be harmonious and together. Mm-hmm. So it's the, the whole idea of the symphony is bringing in this large ensemble to play something together, to have all these intricate moving pieces be combined together to create something magnificent so it's not really a hard and fast definition it's just no very large grandiose it well the the main thing it doesn't even have to be grandiose although a lot of times they are you do have subtle moments also in symphonies okay um you'll have an entire entire movements that are very calm and very reserved but, but lots of instruments. But there are still going. You're not going to have. You can't have a symphony played by a string quartet. You have to have, and this is why the the 
orchestra has its specific parts that are mandatory is because that's what the symphony calls for. You have to have strings and brass and woodwinds and percussion and all these different um, facets. The symphony must be played by a wide array of of different instruments because that's the whole point is to combine all the tone colors together to create something unique. So you use the word mandatory. Does that imply the existence of optional parts? Yeah, I mean, yes, because there's going to be certain um, pieces that call for more people. Like there is a, in the romantic period, there was a symphony that called for a 1000 person orchestra. Oh, and obviously you wouldn't be able to put that together if your, you know, town was 500 people. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, there's not every orchestra has to be the same, but there's, there's, and mandatory in the sense that like you can't perform a symphony piece and not have a string section. Right. Okay. Like you just, that's, that's one of the rules you're not going to break because it's not a symphony. You got to, you have to call it something else. All of the parts have to be there. As well as to a certain extent. And as we get into the late romantic period and beyond, this is a rule that is often violated, but everything has to work together. You can't have different parts of the orchestra fighting against each other and creating creating dissonant. It's not necessary that it's dissonant because if everyone's working together to make something dissonant, then that's fine. And Beethoven was really, really good at that. But if you have people playing over each other, and this is like when you get into the like the early 1900s, into the post-romantic period, and you start to really get into avant-garde stuff to where it's it's intentionally just supposed to be ugly sounding for the sake of shock. Yeah. Then you have the debates of is this really even a symphony anymore? Because you're going against even what the the what the word itself means. Yeah, I was about to say. I mean, because we talked about symphony being you know in unity. Mm-hmm. And you could be in, you know, you can be in unity and playing something dissonant. It's true. And so, therefore, it still can be technically called a symphony. But if it's disunited, uh huh, then it is not a symphony. In the technical, of, again, the te- you'll, the- you'll have people that interpret it however they want, but that's right. A bit of a controversial, touchy subject amongst certain musical. Uh, critics so the symphony as I'm finding out as many other things have as well stems from opera because they really come from the overtures in the Baroque period you have the um, particularly you have the French overture and the Italian overture Mm mm-hmm The French overture came first, and the whole point of a French overture was to announce the arrival of the king or whatever lordly presence was going to be attending. Uh And because, again, back in uh, in the early Baroque period, that's those were the people that were getting to see these performances were were the people of power, and so they would usually write some kind of 
you know, huge dramatic march as he walks in and everyone, you know, stands up and is like, oh, there's the king, yay! Mm-hmm. Where the Italian overture is meant more as a true prelude to what was to come in the show. Like, it's something that would that would play as the curtain comes up. But it's oh. not... They weren't overtures in the sense of kind of how we normally know them to where they're going to be um, true prologues to the operatic piece that's going to be performed. So they're not like sampling the stuff that will be played. No, not in the Baroque period. That's some that's that's something that in more in the Romantic period that is established, and that's where a lot of the most famous overtures come from. Uh. So, but that is that is where the symphony uh, started because those overtures started to become so popular that. In, in the same way that opera became popular, because you had the you had the stage plays that had the the sung bits in the, in between, and those became so popular. Like, hey, why don't we just have that be the thing? And then the overtures became so popular. They're like, hey, why can't that be a thing? And then and that so, became the symphony. Uh huh. So that's that's kind of how the symphony came to be, and so the symphonies technically existed before the classical period began but they didn't reach massive popularity until the classical period was in full swing so you do have some classical symphonies and i believe a a couple of ours fall technically in the baroque uh in the baroque period but once so, again, they're not they're not hard and fast dates. No, but um, four of them are squarely in the time period of the classical period. But our the first two ones are very much early symphonies, created written in the seventeen forties and fifties. Gotcha. And so. So the symphony did exist in the Baroque period, although in a very embryonic state. Once you hit the class, once you get the 1760s is really when the symphony starts to become like the important instrumental mode. And it's the thing that, along with opera, really showed if you are a true master composer, the symphony was kind of the... As far as instrumental music, that's the one where you proved whether you were legit or not because of the fact that you had to successfully create something cohesive with so many different parts. And the uh, the last major thing that really makes a symphony a symphony is its unique four-movement structure. Oh. Now, you can, you can do lots of different types of formats within those movements, like Usually you'll have, you know, you'll have one movement that's a sonata movement or a, uh, a rondo form or a scherzi or a minuet. But just like with concertos, you usually start off with a medium to fast, then you move to a slow in the second. When symphonies were first introduced... They were three movements just like concerto, and they followed the same structure of fast, slow, fast. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And usually the third was always faster than the se- than the first, even mm-hmm. though like, they're both called fast. You could really call the first one medium, moderately fast, where the third would be like very fast. But um, about fifteen years into the the symphony's life, um, Stamitz, who we had talked about earlier as kind of being like the first major symphony writer he was the one that introduced the idea of the four movement where you make the third movement a minuet some kind of a dance like movement and then the fourth movement is more of a traditional third movement where it's kind of like your big finale Uh, so so really it's not that they added a fourth movement it's that they inserted a third movement in the middle so the fourth movement was what the third movement used to be. And I guess the little dancey thing is to make it more, like, acceptable. Yes, that's exactly it. Um, it was to it was the the music that people most commonly heard in their everyday lives because it's it's the type of music that you would hear at parties and get-togethers where you didn't have these large scale productions. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and of course, a lot of people knew how to dance back at that time. So that was the music that they would be accustomed to hearing. And so that was a way to play to the uh, to the general populace. Smart. Yeah, it was. And so symphonies do not have to abide by the four structure, although I would say that it can't ever be less than four you do less than four and it really is not a symphony. You can get away with doing more like uh, Hector Berlioz's uh, symphony fantastique, which is a, one of the major romantic symphonies is a five movement symphony. Did they ever get farther above that? I'm sure they have, not that I know off the top of my head. And again, once you get to the avant-garde area of the of the late 1800s and early 1900s, though people will claim I wrote a one-movement symphony, and that's when people are just like, "Did you really?" Did Did they ever go to like the upper end where they're like hundred movement? Um, again, not that I know of, but I wouldn't pass put it past someone to do it, but I guarantee they're probably not great yeah good point good point okay well i guess if you have nothing else um i don't believe so we'll we'll talk about more composers once we get into the next segment and um we will uh go ahead and take a break here when we come back we're going to talk about the six songs that we have picked for our classical symphonies episodes stay tuned we'll be right back welcome back to the good music podcast we just finished talking about the symphony our first part our first little dip into the waters of the classical era a rather short era considering some of the other eras that we've talked about in our music history spinoff and now it's time to get into the six songs that we're going to talk about for this episode. We do this every episode. These songs hopefully will serve as a great introduction to what we're talking about. Usually we're talking about an artist uh, 
but for our music history spinoff, we talk about, you know, a particular era or maybe a particular artist sometimes. So uh, you'll definitely want to go down into the description. There's a link to a Spotify playlist. It has all of these songs and all of the songs from every episode we have ever done. If there's something interesting there, we have an episode on it. So definitely go listen to that episode and definitely listen to these songs. They will serve as a great counterpart for this episode. It would be a shame if you listened to the whole thing and did not listen to all these six songs. So these will serve as a good introduction. They're not necessarily, you know, the most iconic or necessarily Lucas's favorite because he does put the sets together, um, <laughs> but they're going to add to they're going to add some context to what we've been talking about in our first segment so definitely check them out and without further ado so i don't keep talking for the entire segment let's get to our first song this is no surprise the first word is symphony symphony yes. in d major this is johann stamitz so this is our first international guy our first big international guy yes um i wanted to start with him because this is not going to be entirely chronological, but um, I did kind of want to present some – pretty much we're going to be mostly chronological until the very last song. But thematically, the last song I, I knew I wanted to include because it, it just fit thematically and emotionally. Uh, but we are starting really at the beginning of the symphony. This particular symphony is the first one to really kind of set the template for the four movement symphony. So uh, Stamitz not only helped to develop the orchestra to establish the symphony in general, but after he had already established it, he then was the one that really set the 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 standard for a symphony having four movements so stamitz is one of those guys that really is overlooked and and a a part of that is because he did unfortunately die young he only mm. lived to be nine and there's a lot of discussion of had he lived longer could he have gotten into that pantheon with some of the household name big time guys i only live till what because it cut out and it sounded like you said nine no <laughs> uh like, wow okay he was 39 oh okay yeah so, kind of young and yeah to clarify this three minutes that we're listening to is one of those movements not the entire four movements no we so yeah with these songs we're not going to be playing entire symphonies because um while are shorter especially some of the earlier symphonies because baroque music in general tended to not be super long because yeah. some of these early symphonies were written during the the end of the baroque period and even kind of the um there's there's like a there's like a 10 to 15 year period that's kind of considered like the proto classical period you could call it the Mannheim era because Mannheim was the center of, of classical music during the very first stage. Mm -hmm. Mannheim is in Germany and that's where Stamitz did his work. And the Mannheim orchestra was that they were a big deal. And there was something that Mannheim in particular was very famous for. And it's the Mannheim crescendo. 
that's another thing to know about classical music is they loved crescendos. Mm. And in this first movement, we have those striking first chords, and then we have a classic Mannheim crescendo. And what those really derive from is from the Italian overtures, because the Italian overtures were less about tunefulness and more about creating suspense. And so they would usually always open with a a non-melodic crescendo. Not to say that they were uh, cacophonious, but that's like you couldn't hum them, but they're still pleasant. But the whole point was to build tension and kind of get everyone's attention. So that would be why thematically it also fits at the beginning. Yes. I I heard this first movement and I was just like, this would be a great way to start. Kind of something something that's bright. It's it it immediately makes its presence known. So considering that this is the first four movement uh symphony, it's just like this this is this is probably as as fitting of a starting point as I felt like I could have. Mm-hmm. It it for many different reasons, right? And and when you say crescendo, it's not like it's this like bombastic, intense you know moment where it's like all suddenly coming to fruition after you know ten seconds. It's not yeah, it's not, gonna be, it's, it's not going to be something a, where it's it's less of a thematic crescendo and more of a just musically technically that's what it is. Yeah, it's not going to you know be so quiet that you can hear a pen drop and then gradually build to a deafening roar but it definitely was something new at the time because again you look back at baroque music there's not as much playing with dynamic I don't know there was a there, lot but not in the sense of that creating emotional tension mm-hmm. this is much the Christian more prevalent in classical music as something that is constantly coming in and out. There's a lot more dynamic expression in classical music where you are constantly being between soft, loud, then fading to soft again, and then fading to loud. Like it's, you're not, just play, you're not playing everything at the same thing at the same dynamic where yes, you'll, you'll maybe flip, but it would be more in like set places. Instead of like soft part, loud part, it's kind of like, you know, uh-huh. that, was, that was the weirdest thing. I probably well, could have think about uh, the main keyboards that were used during these two eras. You have the harpsichord, which has literally no, dynamic qualities or capability. And then you have the piano, which comes along the classical period that has tons of dynamic expression. Oh, the piano's piano's a thing now. Piano's yeah. a thing in classical period. Uh-huh. I Although we're we're not gonna later. No, we won't we won't hear any of it in this episode, but that's gonna be uh, one of our classical episodes is we're gonna we're gonna look at some piano works because that's kind of once once composers get their hands on them, it's it changes the game. Ah, so it kind of gives you that new mindset. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And they're not even using the piano, but but the piano is kind of shaped 
music even still. That's kind of cool. Well, well, I won't say that a piano is not in these orchestras because typically a piano will be in an orchestra. Um, you're not just not going to. You're, yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna have any piano parts where you're like, oh, there's the piano. But I bet that if you look at the scores for some of these, there will be piano in it somewhere. It's just not gonna be spotlighted. I know there's a couple that have harpsichord. I think I heard some harpsichord. But... Yeah, probably these early ones, these first two, which are still still have a bit of a toe in the Baroque period. These are the compositions that Mozart would have listened to as he was growing up. This is mm. these are these are the these our first two songs are the things that Mozart would have been inspired by. That is he very wouldn't have been that he wouldn't have been contemporaries with. Beethoven wouldn't have even been born. Wow. That's that's kind of that's kind of intense to think about because we kind of put you know, a lot of these people in like the same cat category, you know, mm -hmm. like we're saying like Bach and Mozart and Beethoven is like, think about those old guys back when they were all, you know, writing music around the same time. And yet, you know, our second song is by Bach's son and Beethoven wasn't even born. Mm -hmm. That's, that's so weird to think about, you know, and it's, it's kind of like how we talk about, some of our um, bands like uh, being inspired by the Beatles, you know, and we still have people today inspired by the Beatles saying like, oh yeah, I like Nirvana and the Beatles, you know, but it's like those guys kind of, you know, there's some cross inspiration there as well. It's, it's, it's weird. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's just kind of fascinating to me and fascinating to no one else, but that's okay. <laughs> Let us know on our Instagram page, you know? Yeah. Shameless plug. But, um, yeah. So, I mean, all I can say, you know, our first song, very uh, still familiar, considering yeah, this was, this still was composed. This is composed in 1753. So, it's it's like right in that gray area. Right. And historians have have firmly said that 1750 is the cutoff date. But again, it's reality is not going to conform to such strict dates. Right. It's an, it's still an evolutionary process. You can hear that something new is happening in this symphony. <laughs> there is a, there is a, a liveliness to it and a something to where you can tell that this is, it's not quite Baroque yet. Had you heard this, in the Baroque period, it wouldn't have been shocking to the senses as something like Mozart yeah. would have been. True. True. Well, all that to say, we should move on to our second song, much in the same vein. Yes. Again, these, I kind of wanted the first two to be still Baroque-ish. I mean, does it get more Baroque-ish than having a, a Bach? So, is this the direct descendant of Johann Sebastian Bach? Yep, it was his 11th son. Wow. <laughs> oh my. His uh, one of his youngest. Um, I'll tell you a long shadow too. Yeah, well many of many of Bach's uh children ended up becoming significant composers. That's kind of cool. And actually ended up having much more 
acclaim in their own lifetimes than Bach ever had in his. That's always nice. But of course, you know, as as time has gone on, they've never been able to match their father. But still, they it's they are at times overshadowed, but they are they are worthy composers to go head to head with many of the best in the classical period. Um, we would refer to Johann Christian Bach as J.C. Bach because of the fact that Bach had several of his sons go on to be significant composers. They, they've had to have different abbreviations for all the different Bachs because you couldn't just say Bach because then you would be like, well, which one? Are so all this of is... his sons Johann? No. No. Unfortunately um you had a you also had CPE Bach which stood for Carl Philip Emanuel and he oh, wow. CPE Bach and JC Bach were kind of were the two major ones of of Bach's immediate descendants mm -hmm. but um JC Bach actually had uh some interaction and gave some lessons to a young Wolfgang Mozart Wow. So, yes. Um, even though uh, J.C. Bach was German-born like his father, he actually converted to Roman Catholicism. And because of that, he, he moved to Italy. And so he has a much more Italian flavor to his songwriting than his father did, who was much – who used all different forms. J.C. Bach was – more purely Italian, and because of that, that's an, a reason why he became quite popular. Because, mm. of course, you copy the Italians and you live in Italy. He lived in Milan for a while and um, got to write several operas and wrote some symphonies, obviously. So he he got to have a good bit of of fame and fortune during his during his time. Um, what stood out to you about this particular uh, symphony? Well, there is that um, kind of that motif that dun 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 dun, and it would modulate a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. It wouldn't necessarily modulate to a different mode, but it was it started on a different note, you know, and then it would play in this note now, and there were, and I assume now I know the correct terminology the italian crescendo is in here you know more than once uh, it's also very fast yes yeah, so this so, is still very virtual. this is this is this is from a three movement symphony and this is the third movement which would have been okay. very fast i wanted okay, to have so it's, not the, it's not the dance movement like the last mm -hmm. one no. Well, no, the last one wasn't a dance movement. It was an opening oh. movement, so it would have been a moderate. All right. But well, this still does have a bit of a dance element to it. That goes to show you my expertise. But <laughs> it would be quite fast. Um, the early symphonies were not that long. Kind of how, like, when we looked at uh, Baroque early concertos, they, mm -hmm. uh, the movements were only, like, you know, a minute and a half to two minutes long. Right. Where if we look back on when we did our Beethoven episode, and we've got um, the fourth movement of Symphony Number no. Nine that's over twenty minutes long, just the one movement. You got the side link, you know, epic. Mm. 
being created there. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's 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 simple Baroque kind of, but there's still there's an injection of some memorability now. You know, instead of everything following perfect logical, like, oh, these notes flow logically, very calculated, but still very artistic. It's now continually bringing you back to that very simple melody. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Again, That's the thing that really kind of stuck out to me. Think of everything is becoming more lyrical. Ooh, yeah. Because again... Because we are instrumental music now. Yes, you you have to you have to find ways for for everything to be memorable and exciting without there being any words. Hmm. How did the, how did it take this long to do? I don't know. It's weird that it took this long to come up with that idea of like let's make it sound lyrical. Well, it's just it, it all comes down to the fact that now you're not playing for the intellectuals and the and the high. Uh, it's true. Society anymore. You're you want your music to be appreciated by as large of an audience as possible, while still earning the approval of the people that are high and in power and intellectual, because they're the ones that are ultimately paying you. So it doesn't have to be picked apart, but if it does, it's rewarding. It's yep. really, it really is that '80s post prog. <laughs> that's exact. That's exactly what nine hundred one two five is. Yeah, I, I've you never can, thought of it that way before, but really, that's that's quite accurate. You can turn your brain off to this music and still pick up some, you know, what the main melody is. You could be able to sing it back, but it seems as if. You know, if you were to write this out and really examine everything, there'd be some really cool little parallels and nuances. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I've only I've only listened to these songs so many times, so maybe if I listen to them more, I don't know. We'll see. But I am listening to it right now as we're recording, so there is that. <laughs> yeah. Well, these these first two, you could again say they're proto classical. I wanted to put them in to kind of show that bridge from the Baroque to the classical, but once we get to our third song, we are in full-blown classical mode. Oh, yeah. We got the uh, top banana himself. The, the man. Amadeus Mozart. Yes, the most famous of all the composers. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Isn't it exciting that we finally reached him? It kind of is. It's, it's almost anticlimactic because he's like the third song. It's not even an episode about him, but at the same time, it's like, ooh, I mean, he's probably going to do like a Mozart specific episode. I don't know. I mean, it's I just, don't know what's in the I, it would, it would be more theatrical to just debut with a Mozart episode, but that's true. I mean, if we're going to talk about symphonies and not show parts, it just would not have been right. Mm -hmm. And that's also, true. I have some personal attachment to this. This was the first symphony that I ever listened to like intentionally sitting down and just kind of listening through it the full thing and, um not the full thing but this first movement in particular and like this was this was kind of one of the pieces that got me interested into studying music history in general Ooh. 
and um i remember this was kind of one of the first orchestral pieces that i was just like i would actually like casually listen to this so this is this is the symphony number 40 wow and it actually isn't (laughs) wait what it's this is because he only wrote 41 symphonies in his lifetime well but he he died pretty young he did but that that is a small number compared to many other classical composers. Mm. So maybe like, he was more like a Bruno Mars, you know, really take the time. Well, what it really was is if you know anything about Mozart, and these are these are some of the things that even people have just learned about in pop culture. Like he composed his first symphony when he was nine. Mm-hmm which is just it's no small feat and it's not just like and then it was never used like it was he wrote it and it was performed it was like as and published like it was you know it was a treated as a legitimate work and if you listen to it you listen to it's just like a fully grown mature composer wrote this wow yeah so you know the majority of his symphonies he actually wrote before he was 20. I think like, I think like 30 of his 41 was before he was 20. Man, I need to kick it into gear. And I'm going to write at that pace. Once he wrote uh, all of those symphonies kind of became non-important to him. He very much was a opera writer first. And then oh. after that, as far as instrumental music, what he loved were um, were pieces for quartets and um, doing more stuff like concertos and piano pieces. Symphonies were kind of just things towards just like, eh, if I have the time, sure, maybe I'll do one. And his last four in particular are are considered like great symphonies. Not that all of them aren't great, but his last four in particular are like considered like some of the best symphonies ever written. Oh, like Pink Floyd. Yeah. And their last, you know, I'm just trying to put some tie-ins here. Gotta gotta have my. Uh... <laughs> my 20th and 21st century brain wrap around this, you know, uh-huh. but um, you mentioned that he was an opera guy. So are his operas as popular today and back in the time as his symphonies? Absolutely. Cause I, um, I've he, heard of that. He's written some of the most popular symphony or operas of all time. Uh, he wrote marriage of Figaro. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's the um, Looney Tunes song. Yeah, Madam Butterfly. Or not not Madam, um, the Magic Flute. Oh, he, I have heard of that. Uh he he did uh, Dom Giovanni. Mm-hmm. And those are those are like the three like big ones that like even people that don't know operas like have heard of those. Um have heard those of those. Yeah. They're they're among the most popular operas and most played operas still to this day that's kind of cool 
op- and when we do an episode on classical operas, we're going to pick one of Mozart's to deconstruct. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, when it comes to classical operas, Mozart was the best. And that's that's really what he was most uh, famous for in his time was his operas. And that's what he loved doing most. Mm-hmm. Well, but but I mean, gosh, dang, he was a good symphony writer. This yeah. first movement. Every time I listen to it, and this is something that when you hear it, it's just like this could be nothing but classical. There's no baroqueness in here at all. This is something. This is something new. It's so catchy. Like even from the beginning, there's that da 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 da. You know, mm-hmm. and that that little rhythm, that little um, I guess melody is paralleled through different modes. You know, and it'll descend down the major scale, and it's it's like so simple. I don't know. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like he gets... formulaic. It's formulaic in a weird uh, Baroque way, but it's not it's not formulaic in the same way. It's he he it's knows kind of... how to he knows how to expound on it. He takes yeah. that theme and he makes it the the bedrock of every single musical decision that he makes throughout. And and again, that's that's really one of the big things that sets apart classical music from Baroque is this theme and variation. And yeah, he he takes that simple idea and just does so many incredible things with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are like these sections of you know virtuosic playing, and then maybe there's like this. Ooh, suddenly we're down into this pianissimo, and then you can hear a very light. It's like ooh, it's like it never leaves, but mm-hmm. it's always presented in these different contexts. And, you know, for all we know, different instruments, you know, different parts of the string orchestra, different woodwinds sometimes. Um, I don't know. It's it's not, it's not fugue-like. No. Because again, it's, it's not different themes piled on top of each other. Yes. Which is what fugue was. The whole thing about fugue is that you have independent melodies that stand on their own yet work together but they aren't necessarily harmonious to where they blend the thing with symphonic um, orchestral music from the classical period is that yes you do have all these different parts that yes I guess you could say could stand on their own but the sum is greater than its parts that's kind of hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, but it is closer to the way that we approach music now, where you do have, like, if you look at, you know, a rock song, you've got the guitars and bass doing their own thing. You've got usually the vocals doing another thing. You've got the rhythm section doing it, depending on how many members of the band and how um complex you want to make your song like you look at a prog song it's it has that same level of of complexity yet when you blend it all together each thing can't exist without the other i feel like it's hard to do that with different like similar instruments but yeah. the same 
with the I same mean, obviously, sound. Obviously, you can't create that big, massive, cohesive power that you can with a 50-person orchestra. Correct. Well, and the other thing is, like, when, you, when you're talking about, like, you know, a, a five-piece prog band, you know, think about drums, bass, guitar, keyboard, vocals, right? You know, those those five things don't sound anything like each other unless you, you know, you're Jordan Rudess and you want to sound like a guitar, right? Uh-huh. Or you're, you know muse and you want the guitar to sound like a keyboard or a keyboard bass you know um and so playing weird independent almost you know king crimson Moonchild kind of stuff isn't as jarring as it would be playing different i don't know maybe i'm wrong because i haven't tried it in in but maybe if I were to try something like that, because I don't even know where I would start, you know, maybe I would gain even more of a wow, you know, as as far as composing something that has so many different moving parts. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I may I may never know, and maybe I probably will never know how hard <laughs> it would be. And it's good that I don't have to because we have this music right here in front of us to show us just how you know masterful it can be done the thing that about mozart's compositional style and also just classical in general that amazes me is that you can have it sounds so busy yet it doesn't sound like it's busy for busy's sake there's always a melody that is being pushed mm-hmm and that's there all of the busyness is still tuneful it's not just a random collection of notes to just fill up sonic space Mm -hmm. and you leave the song being able to sing that melody yes one one other thing before we move on to the next song is um at this point so we're at at the point of this being written, this is in the 1780s, which is like the prime, the, the 1780s and 1790s is like the prime point of classical music. And um, the, the, the center of that movement is in Vienna, Austria. And that's where, that's where uh, Wolfgang is from. And so this is, this is a, a piece like this would be considered in the Viennese style. So if you hear me use that term, that's what that means. Viennese, not Vietnamese. Not Vietnamese, no. <laughs> wrong, wrong side of the planet. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, so to not leave us from a, um, a memorable song so quickly, it is memorable. So maybe if we leave you here, you'll remember everything we said. Yeah. But we're going to another very memorable um, part of a symphony. Yes. This is uh, Franz Joseph Haydn's Symphony Number no. 94, which so now you're going to understand why I say that 41 wasn't as big of a number at the time. Yeah. Uh, this this is Haydn's 94th symphony. It's And it's the surprise symphony. He loved to give nicknames to lots of his uh, symphonies to kind of help them stand apart. Oh, he gave this name. Yes. Oh, I didn't know if it was like musical stories. Okay. No, so, he yeah. 
Haydn. About Haydn, and I, I deliberately wanted to do that because we're going to have two songs of his. Haydn, as far as symphonies go, is probably the most important composer besides Beethoven. Because again, Mozart's symphonies are great, but he never prided himself in his symphonies in compared to some of his other styles. Where Haydn, like, he was the father of the symphony. Mm. Again, we talk about we talk about Stamitz being the innovator and pioneer of the symphony, but mm -hmm. Haydn was the one that took it to its popularity. He wrote 108 of them. Oh my. Now he did live a very long life. Well, he he good. he lived at the time of Bach was a tutor to Mozart. Pretty much he was Mozart's main influence and guiding hand. Mm -hmm. And even got to see Beethoven in his prime. Wow. That's so he got so... to he got to, he got to see the full evolution of the symphony in his lifetime. Because so... he lived he lived to be like 77 years old, which was old for that time. So kind of my point about how someone could theoretically see three different musical movements. Here we are. Mm-hmm. He didn't quite right. make it to what would be officially the Romantic period, but he saw its beginnings with what Beethoven was doing. So, uh, so he was actually much later in his life when he wrote his symphony number 94 and i'll just call it the surprise symphony mm -hmm. and it's it's particular the second movement that gives it that name surprise it's such right. a it's such a great it's a great musical pun yeah because because you got to because he wouldn't have called it surprise whenever he was debuting it it was something that would have appeared in publishing but you can imagine the uh reaction of the crowd they're <laughs> in the they're in the performance and you've got this nice doom 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 and then all of a sudden boom you've got to imagine some people jumping out of their seats yeah you got to imagine some people leaning in to get a better listen and then <laughs> yeah i bet that i bet that was um quite humorous for him yeah. to debut um, you want to talk about theme and variation. This is maybe the easiest and at the same time one of the smartest, coolest ways to take what's almost nursery rhyme level melody and being truly epic and interesting. Oh yeah, this is definitely nursery rhyme melody. I mean like you you hear it and you're almost just like, is this a joke? Yeah. Did he really just write Bum 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 bum. Like that's you feel like that's something that you could learn. You could teach a five year old to play on the piano. Oh, you could. I but think that's the as it goes on, the layers that get added to it on top of that that great surprise moment. It's mm -hmm. it's really brilliant. It's it's exactly what Beethoven would later do as we talked about in our Beethoven episode, where he would take these these almost ridiculously simple ideas and he would create something completely magnificent out of it. Think of the that symphony number five. It's just da-da-da-dum, 
Mm-hmm. And he made an entire movement out of just that simple idea. That's true. Yeah, and, and so and it's it's weird because sometimes in this song he will do kind of what Mozart did in the previous song, where it will now be in a different mode. You know, there's one where he'll play it in this harmonic minor. Yeah, when it when all of a sudden scary nursery rhyme. Yeah. Yeah, and and there's some moments where there's some really fast violin all, all over it, you know. Yeah, when Right. It never loses that melody though. Mm-hmm. And that's that I think is the is the prevailing wind of this episode is that now we're so focused on melody. And I think that's a good thing because like that well maybe I'm not one to make that judgment, but it definitely is getting us closer to where music is today because all we think about today, you know, is what's the chorus like, you know? Mm -hmm. Or is there a good melodic moment in the guitar solo? Or et cetera, et cetera. Like the memorability factor is so important to us now that to think that the memorability factor was new is very alien. Yeah. I mean, you would never hear something this intentionally simple in the Baroque period. Yeah, it it would it would be a joke if it were. Mm-hmm. So they would say, "Does this guy even know how to compose?" But again, it's just I think that that's what's so cool about this movement is that it's not just the surprise and the that gotcha moment. But it's a, it really is a surprise that he took something so elementary and turned it into something so masterful. It's true. It's, it's, it's literal and meta at the same time. Yeah. That surprise it's, moniker. It's like our uh, Hollow Notes episode where, um, what was it? Had to have been, was it Private Eyes? Where it's just the drum machine? No, that's, um, that was I can't go for that. Oh, it was. It was just. It was just the drum machine, and then coming up with the words in like an hour, you know, and then just, yeah. And it, it's, it is simple, you know. It's almost like. I don't. I don't know where I was going with this, but we were talking about something. It made sense to me fifteen seconds ago, but yeah, probably well. something about how it was just. It was completely simple. And it was completely um, effective. Yes, its effectiveness is yeah. yeah. And again, you can you can feel now that there is a general audience that that is being played for. You can imagine like someone that's like a shoemaker, like heard that was just like wow, that was so cool. I love that melody. While at the same time, you've got those just like whoa that was actually quite rich what he just did. Mm-hmm. That's so, true. So Haydn is one of those guys that he's not as famous as Mozart or Beethoven, but he is someone that you will occasionally find someone that's not like super nerdy into um, music that would know who he is because he is one of the most important composers. And I would say he's third 
biggest as far as the classical period. I mean, when you're going up against Mozart and Beethoven, being the third best is really good because, <laughs> I mean, those guys were <laughs> insane. Yeah. And and we're going to actually have one more from Haydn that we'll look at because, again, when you have the nickname Father of the Symphony and we're doing an episode about symphonies, it felt right that we needed to do two things from him. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of repeats except for him. So he's obviously an important, you know, person just looking from the song. So I'm glad that my intuition as far as that was right. But of course, for all anybody else knows, that wasn't my intuition. I'm just, you know, I'm just making it up on the fly. <laughs> but anyway, all that to say, we got our father of the symphony you know, uh, song number one in. And now it's time to get to kind of our innovator towards the end of the classical era. Yes, we, we're going we're gonna to talk about Beethoven for just a little bit. We've done an entire episode on Beethoven before. It's crazy to think that that was almost a year ago. Oh my, it was over a year ago. No, it wasn't over a year ago. We did it in, um, I think it was like in October because I remember doing it over the summer because we did Queen for the... For no, the I, I'm okay. I'm very sure that it was in October because I remember I did the research for it when I was on my September vacation. Okay, yeah, that, that kind of that kind of does it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember things like this. <laughs> yeah, um, vacation, yeah. But this is, this is first time, we were talking about this earlier that... Um, someone has popped up in our music history episode that we've previously done an entire episode on a normal that episode. Wasn't part of it. So it's, it's cool to see that we're finally again, getting closer and closer to the modern era. Um, I would highly recommend to check out our Beethoven episode because it'll give you a lot more depth into who Beethoven was, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of briefly touch on it. And we've been, mentioning it here and there on this episode but beethoven was as breaking as it gets because he actually only composed nine symphonies if people kind of give crap to mozart about only writing 41 beethoven only wrote nine but all nine of his symphonies were were revolutionary in of themselves Every uh, single, it was kind of like that was always like his big statement every time was a symphony that's just gonna be like nothing that's ever, anyone's ever heard before. Haydn wasn't necessarily like that, that's how he can write 108 symphonies. He, he had a formula, it was a really good formula, and it was a formula that he came up with, but he's not reinventing the wheel every time that he's. Uh, writing a symphony. Beethoven was. And so he so, would spend a lot of time on each one because he's like, I'm going to do something that no one's ever heard. You're telling me that Haydn is like Nickelback and, no! Beethoven, and Beethoven is like Evil Chuck. No, no, no. Don't, all of music. Don't, don't, don't think of it that way. Well, you did say formulaic, you know? But I... 
But again, we talked about how it's a good formula, and it's a formula he came up with. He invented okay, the formula. True. That's true. Trend chase. And he did evolve over time. You know, his early symphonies are don't sound like his later symphonies, but he also was not someone that was going to come up with these wild, insane ideas. Okay. Beethoven, Beethoven. Beethoven, like we said earlier, his big thing was about personal and musical expression. That's what came first. So we're we're returning to the uh, Symphony Number no. Five, which of course has that incredibly famous first movement yes. with the uh, the fate motif. So this is actually the movement that comes right after it. I've always loved this movement. Whenever I decided I was going to do um this episode on symphonies i was just like i've got to i've got to throw in this this second movement because it's so beautiful and yet so powerful at the same hmm so, it seems more i mean i don't know because it almost seems a little bit free formish you know what i mean it like I it noticed is... of all these songs, it was the least um I guess it, it seemed the least structured. But this is one of the most classically leaned um movements of a symphony that he's ever written. Like the f- the first movement of Symphony number no. five would not have fit in well with these other uh classical purely classical symphony movements. This number two definitely almost feels like a love letter to what's come before with obviously his own twist on it. Yeah. There's some moments towards the middle that are very, very simplistic. Yes, because, I mean, really, the Viennese style was his inheritance. It's what he grew up on. It's what was the norm at the time that he really started to compose. He really started to enter his prime when Mozart passed away. They weren't completely contemporaries, although they overlap. By the time he was really becoming a serious composer, Mozart was out of the picture. Mm -hmm. But that was the legacy that he... um, had to work with that was what was in the public consciousness and so to a certain extent everything that he was going to do until i would say like at the very end of his life was going to be classically informed and specifically that viennese style was going to be inherent in what he was going to be writing um specifically the the the, this particular theme and variation is much more classical Whereas in the theme and variation in the first movement is much more emblematic of what the romantic period would, would contain. Hmm. This is, this is the more classical movement of that symphony. Maybe I'm not quite attuned to the differences of the classical and romantic eras, but I mean, you haven't, you haven't gotten to hear a lot of romantic yet. Yeah, that's true. And and hopefully if someone is listening to this in the far future, we have plenty of episodes on the Romantic era. So, <laughs> And 
And I mean, really, you can even to you right now, the classical period is still new because this is our first entrance into it. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. But and I, this, and I am no music historian. It's still incredibly lyrical. It's still got those grand moments of the classical period. The way that it shifts um, to where you have that same melody, that ba da dum dum da da dum da da dum dum. The second time it comes in, da 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 like the way that it's evolving as it moves, but not in the sense of like you've got like it's rapid fire. You look at the first movement and it's like you're every 10 seconds, you're getting a new variation on that opening motif where this mm-hmm. it's much more, it's expositing entire melody lines and evolving them. Involving them rhythmically, yes, as well as mo as well as modally. Well, but think about too much. I mean, when you think about a reprise, you want that you melody to have the same, you know, the speed, the same rhythm, the same everything, so you can really pick up on the fact that it's a reprise. Am I the only one that just gets? floored emotionally whenever that you can almost call it a chorus line I don't know when it switches to C major and I, it just it comes know. in big with the brass that's just that's about as epic and triumphant as it gets really towards the end I mean every single time it comes in but yeah in the and the end is when it does it the biggest and best but even when it comes in that very first time, it's just like, whoa, what a line. And what a great setup to it as well. Having those dissonant um, chords coming in right before, and then it just, and then it switches keys from B flat to C. It's quite great. Yeah. You know, there's, it's, it's a lot of great little, little moments. And it's, like I was saying, it's weird to have them be different rhythmically. That's why I guess it maybe initially sounded so freeform to me. Because that variation was not as much modally as it was, you know, feel. You know. Yeah. It's more it's more obvious in, you know, for example, La Via Strangiata when they come back to that monsters theme and it's slowed down a little bit. And it's mm-hmm. not quite in that da 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 da. It's more like da da da, you know, because it's it's instruments that I'm used to. It's a song that I've heard a million times, you know. Um, so I don't know. Maybe that's maybe this is still very Beethoven-y, very romantic. Like now, romantic. yeah, Be- Beethoven's still putting his own unique spin on it to where it doesn't fall neatly but this is i would say still more classical than romantic to where i would feel where i would feel comfortable putting this in a classical episode ah. but at the same time showing how far the symphony came i mean compare this to um our opening symphony movements 
these are still classical, yet look how much it's grown in that 70-year period. Yeah. It's true. It's a quite point. phenomenal. But I, I had thought about making this the last song, but then I came across our last song, and I was just like, oh, yeah. well, this, this actually just, I feel like, fits things perfectly. And we're returning to Haydn for our final movement. This is the fourth movement of his symphony number five, his farewell symphony. Uh, yeah, it was not his farewell symphony. He names his symphonies like Kiss names their tours. Well, there is a specific story behind this. Oh, okay. So at the time, he was um, completing a residency uh, I can't remember where it was specifically, but he had actually stayed there much longer than originally asked to. And it was in the winter months. I believe Christmas was coming up. And he had already planned on being home in his home country by then. And he was upset that he felt like he was being taken advantage of. Because he was doing very well there, and audiences and all the dignitaries and the patrons all loved him. And so this symphony ends was a grand statement to say, I'm leaving, I'm going home. Ooh. And so you have the first half of this is a typical fourth movement in a symphony. But then if you'll notice in the second half, it all of a sudden just changes gears and it goes into this very, very somber, very um, restrained that gets smaller. It's a decrescendo. Mm -hmm. It's the going away. And what is actually happening, what will happen when they first perform this live was members of the orchestra were leaving the stage mid-song. So it wasn't just that they stopped playing. They were leaving the stage. That was intentional. Yes. That was what Haydn planned. Ooh. So Man, he he's, a real, he's a real big brain guy. Uh-huh. He, he had a great sense of humor. Like, this wasn't something that was meant to be, like, nasty but this was his way of strongly communicating hey we're done we're, we want to go home we want to see our families and obviously they weren't like you know leaving the stage and then getting on the road but like his his patrons got the message just like okay you can go home you've <laughs> well that was kind of that's kind of uh, rock and roll of him in a weird way he yeah, but Haydn's legacy has always been as one of the nicest and most gracious and humble composers as far as in comparison to his great skill. Mm -hmm. Because most people that had his musical brilliance were kind of a-holes, like Mozart, like Beethoven, like most romantic composers. Haydn and Bach are kind of seen as the two nice guys of the top-level composers. Yeah, I didn't even know Mozart was a mean guy. Oh, yeah. He he was a notorious... He was a rock star. 
and all that entailed. Oh, wow. Okay. So, but Haydn, Haydn was a gracious, humble man that had a great sense of humor. I mean, we heard it in the surprise. Farewell is another way, again, that he's showing his his humor and his irony, but at the same time doing something that's pretty powerfully poetic. And so, yeah. because when you, whenever you hear ending and you don't have that context, it almost seems strange. Mm-hmm. I would, I would say that of all of Haydn's symphonies, this is the most experimental and shocking thing that he's ever done. Because symphonies never ended like this. This was a rule-breaking moment. And it's something that that music historians still kind of marvel at to this day. Because even symphonies did not end. Because this is the fourth movement. This is the end. There's no movement coming after this to give us our big climactic ending. This is a... Um, an intentionally intimate and somber ending. And I felt like that that would be a unique and unexpected way to end this set. Symphonies being normally and over the top, ending with something quite intimate and and restrained. Do you think the audience was kind of wondering like, if that was going to be the end? Yeah. Like, wondering what was going on? But the report is, is that they gave a huge standing ovation when it was done. They loved it. Well, good. So it wasn't one of those things that, where they were like, oh, for shame. How could he do that? Mm-hmm. Or they were confused or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were confused in the moment because, again, this was an unexpected move. But once it was over and it kind of settled in, the crowd went wild. Oh, man. That's what every artist wants to see. Mm-hmm. Haydn was loved and respected. He was another one of those composers that was internationally recognized and adored. Good. Well, I can see why. You got, you got, you got the um, Dave Grohl patience and humor and niceness and just very good songwriting, masterful the father of the symphony. I mean, you don't get that kind of nickname by sitting around. No, he was a workhorse for sure. Because, I mean, we talk about 108 symphonies. Those were just the symphonies. He did many other forms of composition as well. Oh, my. Oh, so my. He, oh my. He, he was prolific. He used his 77 years um, well. And here we are in the 21st century, and most people just write songs for their, you know, their Spotify or their YouTube, you know, or Mm -hmm. they compose movie scores. You know, very few people are dabbling in these different types of music or even really different types of media at all. Very rarely where you see somebody who is a photographer and also, you know, a artist even, you know, let alone musically. So I don't know. I mean, you do, you do see it, but 
usually people are just, they pick one and they go with it. And I'm one of those people, you know, I'm talking about these people as if I'm one of them, right? Uh, music is my thing. I, I could never write music for a movie, you know, if I tried, maybe I could try, you know, never know. Might be, might, I might be a natural, but I like, I don't have a good aesthetic eye, for example, but you have these composers that are able to write these great stories for their operas, you know, oratorios, you know, they write symphonies and, and they have these catchy hooks in all of them, you know, it's like, it's the music doesn't stop. They have this weird way of being able to just keep coming up with good stuff. It's like we have this filter now as being in the future. We're only looking at maybe the best guys, but these guys still existed. I mean, they lived, right? And they were able to pull this off. And there's so many of them. I mean, we have Mozart and we have Haydn and, I mean, Beethoven only in nine symphonies, but every single one of them being landmark symphonies. That's, that's quite a pre uh, Im oppressive. Oh my impressive, you know? So I don't know, maybe I'm getting too much into the final thoughts, which we have coming up. So definitely <laughs> stick around. Yeah. I, in fact, I think that, that can serve as a perfect segue into our third segment. So yes. we're going to take another short break here. When we come back, we'll just let Grant pick up where he left off <laughs> and giving final thoughts. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about classical era symphonies. And um, I, won't, I won't rattle through the names of the songs in particular just because they... They all start with symphony. Yeah. You've got Johann Stamitz, uh, J.C. Bach, Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, and then another one from Haydn, his Farewell Symphony. And you can check all those songs out on our Spotify playlist. There's a link for that in the description of the episode. But let's get into our final thoughts. So, Grant, we didn't even uh, give ourselves a number ranking, I realize now. And we didn't really give first thoughts at all. No. I, Oopsies. I, but <laughs> I mean, it is, it, is a, um, it is a music history. I don't think we tend to do that. But. We, I feel, like, I think we usually do, because you, you can, you can, I guess, give us a quick think of like what you thought of when people said symphonies, or what you thought the classical period in general, what that entailed. I thought I would have been pretty accurate because you know when you think of symphony, right? You think of this huge symphony orchestra, right? So it's like all these parts working together, right? Um, so that that that's kind of what I would have been because if you think of things working in symphony it's like they are together you know there's there's a unifying you know clockwork motion and they're all achieving this same goal right all of the instruments are achieving the same goal so i probably would have been pretty accurate if i had to give kind of a working definition i think i would have done pretty well and same thing for classical. I mean, I remember enough from eighth grade music to tell you that the um, classical era was from about 1750 to, you know, 18 something, right? So I was at least close there. 
I remember, I think in our class, we actually cut it off at 1800. Um, but, you know, I mean, obviously there's no hard dates when it comes to this stuff. It's all this gradual progression. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. And so I don't know where I would have necessarily numbered myself because, you know, I know a couple of, you know, melodies, maybe. I know me a couple symphonies. <laughs> well, like melodies from like some Mozart stuff. Yeah. I, I completely forgot that Haydn was technically part of this. I knew the name, but I I thought he came around later. So yeah, it goes to show what I know. But um, no, and and um, so I don't know where I could put myself at a number. So I guess that means I'm a five. But now I have a respect. For it. I don't know if I necessarily go out and listen to symphonies. I don't think I'm going to be that kind of person. Um, but I can understand the level of craftsmanship. And I can understand the um, appeal of the melodies now. And I think it's really cool. So I'm definitely at a strong six. Now, it could be very hard to pull me down from a six because of... Um, yeah, I mean, just just the level of artistry that we see here, and the level of good melody crafting. And yeah. I completely forgot what I was talking about before we took a break, but I'm sure it was a wonderful thought. Oh, well, you were just you were given your um your grand opinion of um just the craft of what these people were able to do. Oh yeah, and the fact they were able to do multiple different things as well. Uh-huh. I mean, Haydn writing 108 symphonies and them being memorable and giving them all little nicknames, you know, that's crazy to me. I mean, that's that's like writing 108 epics, you know, the equivalent. <laughs> yeah. And we have bands that if they write three epics, that's like, oh, my Lord, they're so pro. Maybe that's because music is just moving very fast now. But, um, you know, and, and maybe that's a good thing, but maybe that's a bad thing. If you're, if you love the seventies, you're like, man, I wish that music wasn't moving so fast. So all music could be like seventies, but sometimes I have that thought, but at the same time, it's like our music moves so fast now that we can combine a whole lot more, you know, things because it's all happening now within, you know, a few years there's new movements new completely different ideas especially in like metal right now you know where what are we doing right now in metal it's like we have slipknot over here and then devin townsend came up with this crazy weird prog thing and then ghost is also a thing you know so being able to combine these crazy different movements that are all prevailing and that's just the metal genre you know in the classical era, they have this one, you know, forward progression. And there's still many different combinations and permutations of notes and melody and ideas that these musical geniuses are able to come up with. And there's not a lot for them to work with. And at the same time, they're coming up with a lot of new and memorable stuff. So that's something to be you know, respected and commended, even if you don't like it, you know, and, you know, I'm going to plug what I usually say, which is something about typo negative. And 
<laughs> and go listen to the songs because maybe maybe you'll love it. Maybe you'll say, "Ah, oh, Grant, ranking it at a six, that's dumb. They should be all the way at like an 11 or 12. I love this stuff. It's changing my life. I'm going to listen to all of Mozart. And if that's the case, I'm very happy for you that the podcast got you there because that's kind of our goal is to introduce people to something that they never thought they would love. So definitely go check out the songs. That's the end of my final thought. Was I supposed to pick a favorite song? I think I was supposed to. Sure, yeah. So, I don't know, man. I, I think I just got to go with Mozart. Can't go wrong with can't go wrong with Mozart. No, you can't. So, it was that or maybe um, the Surprise Symphony. But the story of the Farewell Symphony was pretty good, too. But I don't know if that one pushes it over the edge. So, anyway, that is my final thought. Lucas, it is time for your final Man, how do I follow that up? That was that was Everyone, something. Every once in a while, I have a I have a pretty packed final thought. Yeah, and that was even you can even carry that over from what you were saying in the previous section. <laughs> oh man, okay. Um, so obviously, the symphony and the classical period in general was kind of my gateway into this entire world of music history. As I was saying with the with the Mozart, which I'll just go ahead and spoil. That's my favorite. Just because not only do I just love it musically, but I've got a history with it. But I would say pretty close behind is uh, Beethoven's number five, Movement Two. But I am at that point to where, like, classical era symphonies, I would casually listen to. And I would say probably even more so now hearing some of Haydn's stuff and uh, and some more of Mozart's symphonies and even some of our uh, um, well-loved composers like Stamich as like I would I would love to to dive more into those and just continue to to find some great symphonies and to me, it's just this is the point to where we really start to see just true, masterful storytelling in music. There has been masterful music before in the Baroque period. Point now, it's not just about how can we make this song sound really good. Now the songs are telling a story. I've always loved songs that do that, music that does that. So symphonies have always been kind of near and dear to my heart and again this is this was this was the thing that got me into this into this research and so i've gotta gotta give props to that um thank you everyone so much for listening to this episode this was a really fun one to do i'm glad that we're finally into the classical period we're really going to hear a lot of cool stuff over the coming months from the classical era so make sure that you tune into those um, if you want to listen to these songs, again, there's a description in, or a link in the description of the episode where you can listen to these and all the songs from our previous episodes. Also in the description is a link to our Patreon page. We won't have our uh, segment for this week because we don't do those for our history of music to to rank every classical era symphony from start to finish would be impossible. <laughs> yeah so i i shan't 
be doing that. Um, but on all of our other episodes, we, we tend to do that. So make sure you tune in for that. And uh, make sure to check us out on Instagram, Facebook. Get involved with the conversation. That's also the best way for you to tell us what artists you would like for us to do in the future. And um, make sure you hit the subscribe button, whatever platform you're listening on. Next week, it's going to be a volume two. And it's actually going to kick off a themed month. But I'm not going to say what it is yet because mm-hmm. I want to I want to have fun on Instagram doing our, our guesses on Thursdays. So... Um, I will say that we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna start off in the seventies. And it's gonna be it's gonna be really fun. This is one I've been wanting to do for a while. And that's it. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. Keep on listening to good music.